the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is indeed, live and in person, not on Memorex, here to say good afternoon and welcome. Great to have you on board. Another edition of Lifeline for this Tuesday, May the 7th, and a jam-packed program for you. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. With an election barely a year and a half away, um, let's spend a little time talking about Russian election meddling and does it really make all that much of a difference? I mean, it makes us feel uncomfortable, to be sure, but can they really impact the outcome of an election? We'll talk about that when Bob Zadak joins us later on in this hour. Hour number two tonight, another best-selling author, Dr. Joe Marlone joins us. We're going to talk about all the gender fluidity and fluidity and confusion over gender roles that seem to be getting more uh, lines blurred and degrees of which young boys growing up don't really know what exactly their roles ought to be. Are there scientifically measurable rules that relate to just exactly how men and women should not only act but relate to each other. We'll talk about that coming up tonight in hour number two. Also, Brad Dacus will drop by to give us an update on a very troubling Senate bill. Senate Bill 360, which might normally mean uh, well-rounded with a complete view, right? All, all 360 degrees, and not in this one. It essentially is going to, if passed, take away the ability of clergy to provide privacy for people who confess, and we'll dive into the details on that a little bit later on. Meanwhile, I want to update a story you heard at the top of the hour. So at least seven are now dead. One, I'm sorry, seven injured, one dead after school shooting in Colorado this afternoon. One hospital indicated it had five of the victims. Four of them are in serious condition. Officials said two people, one juvenile, one adult, are in custody. The shooting at the K-12 through STEM school in Highlands Ranch began shortly before 2 p.m. this afternoon. The school has about 1,800 students and located about seven miles from Columbine High School, which ironically just marked the 20th anniversary of the tragic 1999 school shooting where 13 people were killed. Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock says both of the suspects in today's STEM school shooting are believed to be students at the school. Uh, we currently have two suspects in custody. I'm not releasing their names at this point. Uh, we're verifying their age. We believe we have one adult male and one juvenile male. We do have eight students that are in area hospitals right now. Uh, several of them are in critical condition. Uh, we know that uh, two individuals uh, walked into the STEM school, uh, got deep inside the school, 
and um, uh, engage students in two separate uh, locations. I can tell you that there was shots fired. Um, our officers went in and we engaged the suspects. So that might be some of that information. And then we did struggle with the suspects to take them into custody, and they are in custody right now. And, of course, the, the backside of this tragic story will be that um, half the percentile of um, politicians will call for stricter gun control laws. The other will say that our thoughts and prayers are with you and with the victims and their families. And meanwhile, nothing will get done, sadly, as usual. Uh, this, of course, demonstrative of the increasing culture of violence, not just here in the United States, but in fact, this is a problem and maybe an important point to make. Wide spread globally. Witness, for example, tragedy of violence taking place in parts of the world over the Easter celebration. For example, in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, there were attacks at a number of churches across the nation. All told, in recent weeks, these widespread targeted attacks, usually by Islamic extremists against Christians, have left 253 dead so far. Sri Lanka, of course, has been in the middle of an ongoing protracted civil war. Joining me now with an update is Danny Yohannan. Of course, Gospel for Asia has been long active in ministering to the people of Sri Lanka. Danny joins us now by phone. Danny, give us an update. We understand that this tragic event that occurred over Easter Sunday, these um, terror bomb attacks on two separate churches, directly impacted some of the GFA family. Yes, you know, it was quite unfortunate that, you know, on Easter Sunday, it's the, the holiest day of the year for Christians. I mean, it's it's the highlight of the year where we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ, you know, his life, death, and burial, and then resurrection. Um, on this day, these, these bombs went off, killing people in the churches and also in the hotels. Um so sad and heartbroken for so many of the families that have lost their lives and lost their loved ones. Uh, in our Bridge of Hope um, you know, center, one of the uh, staff members there that work with the kids lost five of their, their relatives um, in the church bombings. And so, um, you know, our people on the field there will be um, helping conduct the funeral services uh, for those family members, but, you know, the the situation in Sri Lanka is, you know, they have just, you know, some years ago ended, you know, many, many, many years of civil war, and uh, just much fear and uh, strife, and during a time of peace, and kind of everyone able to kind of breathe, all of a sudden now, again, these attacks are happening in terms of trying to bring fear and instability uh, to this nation. And so this is this is a very uh, grave and serious situation because whatever happens in some of these nations affects the other nations also. It also encourages people to do more and to attack Christians more. There was a report that came out saying that uh, Christians are the most uh, attacked and persecuted group in the world now, uh, talking, of course, globally. And this is a fact. It almost seems that every... A year during Holy Week, during Easter Sunday, some attack somewhere in the world will happen at some church or against some Christians. It's becoming more frequent, 
Um, and these people who are doing attacks know that gatherings are large during Sunday on Easter uh, resurrection morning. And so this is the reality that we live with. You know, our people that serve in some of these hostile environments, uh, you know, they are encouraged and told to please read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, when Jesus said, these things will happen. Be prepared to give your life for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. And so many of the people that are serving, they already know the dangers that exist. And it's very common that if you're going to follow Christ, the idea and what Christ said to pick up your cross, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, is a daily reality that maybe today your life will be given away for the sake of the gospel. And so this is, a, this is the heartbreak that we live with, uh, knowing that so many people are affected and hurt by this, but at the same time, we know somehow uh, people's hearts will be drawn towards the Lord, and we pray that somehow uh, through this and testimonies of those who survived and who lost loved ones, they will proclaim Christ's name uh, to the whole nation there. The shock and the pain of having lost not one, but um, all told some five family members in two separate church attacks uh, has got to be shocking and stunning, not only clearly for um, the one worker with GFA, but for everybody uh, in the extended uh, family uh, impacted by something like this. How can we be praying for the ministry of gospel for Asia, specifically under these circumstances and in Sri Lanka, Danny? I think there's a couple of things that people can be praying for. I would I would encourage everyone in the nation, especially you know those of us who go to church, can we have at least like two or three minutes during the Sunday service where we ask the congregation to please pray for these kinds of situations? I mean, all you have to do is is turn on the news or listen to the radio, and you, there's plenty of things to be praying for. But make prayer a, a standard thing during our Sunday services where we're praying for what's happening around the world, but specifically praying for Sri Lanka, praying for the peace in that nation. They are, you know, finding more bombs, they're defusing bombs, they're finding people, they're trying to get to the bottom of all this, but pray for the leaders in the nation. They've dealt with many years of civil war. Um, They have to make very critical and serious decisions during this time. Uh, Pray for the ministry uh, that is happening there. Uh, Because of these kinds of attacks you have, what normally happens is you have curfews, you have restrictions on travel, you have restrictions on large gatherings, and so pray that there would once again be peace so that uh, the ministry can continue more freely. Uh, we can pray also for Gospel for Asia here. You know, as people look at these kinds of situations, what we're praying for is people don't just simply see this as an awareness campaign or thank you very much, I got that next uh, type of thing. But see what God can do through your life, either praying or giving or doing something in order to help bring hope and healing to people's lives. If people are interested, they can go to gsa.org to learn more. Uh, They can give, they can pray. There's plenty of opportunities for people to get involved. People can use their social media to let other people know. Unfortunately, you know, Easter week is gone. The two-week news cycle kind of goes over. Uh, but this is the reality. People are still living with the reality that they lost loved ones. This doesn't go away in two weeks. And so these things should not 
uh, be gone from our hearts and our minds after two weeks. Let our hearts be moved with compassion as Christ's heart was moved with compassion also. And certainly to be mindful of the fact that the the persecuted church is taking place all around us. Uh, you know, we, we are sort of isolated from much of this here in the United States, but in, in many countries, be it Vietnam or China or Russia or Sri Lanka or uh, certainly a majority of the Islamic Middle East, these sorts of attacks and threats on Christians take place all the time. So to be mindful, to be prayerful for fellow believers in persecuted parts of the world, and specifically in this case here on behalf of the church in Sri Lanka and the good work being done there by Gospel for Asia. More information available on the web about the ministry at gfa.org. That's Gospel for Asia, GFA. Org. Our thanks to the Vice President of Gospel for Asia, Danny Yohannan, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, 516, time to get caught up on some traffic. We'll come back with more of our conversation around the corner. Bob Zadek with some insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are in the process. We sounds like too many people. Uh, Joel is in the process of getting a hold of Bob Zadek, who is uh, otherwise disposed. And while he is working on that, let me give you another update. If you've joined us a bit late in tonight's program, uh, there was a tragic shooting today in Colorado, ironically, uh, not all that long after marking of the 20th anniversary of the tragic shooting at Columbine High School back in 1999. Initially, there had been reports that there were seven people that had been hurt following this uh, tragic shooting at the STEM school um, located there in Douglas County at Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Uh, That report is now being updated. Multiple media outlets reporting that one of these students is now dead following that school shooting. Several other students injured in the shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch just south of Denver this afternoon. Two suspects are under arrest. Both are said to be students at the school, one believed to be at least 18 years old, the other 15 years old. Earlier, Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock indicated the two shooters got deep into the school and opened fire at two locations there. All the suspects that were injured are at least 15 years old. Federal investigators are now on the scene to assist with the investigation. So again, repeating of the original eight that had been reported Injured, one now has apparently died in hospital. So we encourage you to be uh, praying for this unfolding tragedy, um, not only for the seven remaining victims in hospital, but certainly for their family members. Um, it, it's, you know, I, I, what do you say in circumstances like this that we haven't said multiple times before? It's loathsome, it's tragic, it's horrific, it's heartbreaking, it's unbelievable, it's heart wrenching. It's something where uh, politically the two um, extremes uh, will ultimately uh, do nothing. One side will say we need greater gun controls and restrictions and changes on the Second Amendment, blah, 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 blah. The other side uh, will retort by saying we can't touch the Second Amendment, but our thoughts and prayers are with you. And meanwhile, in the middle, the tragedy continues to unfold. Much of this I have long held is associated with an ever-increasing culture of violence in our country. Uh, While we can perhaps point specifically to um, 
behavior of individuals and issues related to uh, spiritual conditions and mental health and the like. Um, Ultimately, when you are repeatedly putting forth violence as a means of entertainment, putting forth violence as a means of um, solving problems, particularly for those that are perhaps um, incapable of being able to differentiate between violence for entertainment's sake and real violence or real bullets that kill real people. Um, And sadly, right there in the middle are the victims. So uh, we'll continue to keep you updated as more information comes into the KFAX newsroom. And again, repeating um, of the what had been eight individuals taken to local hospitals there at um, the STEM school at Highlands Ranch just outside of Denver, Colorado, uh, now being reported that at least one of those eight students has succumbed to their injuries. Let's turn a corner deal with another topic, shall we? Um, I made reference to this at the top of tonight's program. Uh, The notion that, and we've said this before, the unchecked agenda by the extreme left within the Democrat Party in California, in the California state legislature, without anybody to sort of hold them accountable and put a foot on the brake somewhere, is going to ultimately be disastrous at multiple levels for our state, not just economically. I think that's almost a given. But but also in terms of our freedoms that we enjoy, our ability to enjoy a quality of life here in our state, that affects everything, including education. Um, Witness, for example, and I've said this once we saw Jerry Brown leave office, we were going to be in for a wild ride because our new governor um, hasn't met an extreme bill that he doesn't like yet. Maybe that'll change. But so far, everything that this governor has indicated that he would sign, he has. And if he signs another potential proposed bill here, it could be catastrophic for religious freedoms and privacy here in California. Witness Senate Bill 360. Ironic number. 360 normally talks about, you know, the, the number of lines within the globe. And, and uh, if you have a 360-degree view of something, that means you're seeing all sides. That's in the, the common nomenclature, right? Uh, this, though, however, <laughs> is one of the examples where 316 doesn't mean 360. Not at all. Let's get a report on this proposal, Senate Bill 360, that essentially would now insist that clergy be added to the list of those who are compelled to report allegations or suspicion of sexual impropriety or molestation. And certainly, as we're joined by constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, certainly, Counselor, a lot of this has to be the backlash in responding to the Roman Catholic Church's apparent inability um, to uh, get a handle on the ongoing scandals here in uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, And while I laud anyone who wishes to do something to protect innocent children. I'm wondering if Senate Bill 360 is maybe a bridge too far. Absolutely, uh, Craig. Uh, it, it goes way beyond uh, dealing with uh, clergy abusing children. In fact, it's really not even uh, focused on that. What it does is it says that uh, clergy, uh, priests uh, and, and ministers, pastors, uh, that uh, they no longer have a privilege uh, with those who come to confess. 
And people need to understand why that's so important for safety as a, as a, as a general rule, because that allowing uh, confession is allowing for there to be a, a healing process, people possibly repenting, turning from that thing that they've done before. If they don't, if, if people know that it's going to be uh, reported uh, and that they're going to be uh, arrested and whatever, then they're not going to go to confession. There's not going to be opportunity for healing, and they're more likely going to commit the same crime over and over and over again with more victims. This is clearly against good public policy and the public health and safety. There has been a presumed protection of privacy for three specific professions, as long as I can certainly remember. Um, the, the, uh, the protection of the right to privacy uh, between your priest or your minister, your doctor, and your lawyer. Are we essentially saying that Senate Bill 360, under the guise of wanting to do good, wipes away at least one of those three range, uh, arenas of presumed right to privacy? Oh, it definitely does. And in fact, uh, you know, even if we're talking about someone who uh, may have done something wrong in the past, but just the fear that it may uh, qualify for reporting will really stunt the ability for churches, ministries, pastors, priests uh, to do their job to really help people in a way that the, the government can't, the state can't, uh, the prisons can't. And that's why uh, this is, is so, uh, it may, may be well-meaning, possibly, but it is so counter uh, to, uh, to the alleged intent, which is to uh, help prevent victimization. It actually will make victimization much more difficult to uh, to prevent. Well, and again, I, I would like to think, at least at face value, that this is well-intended. However, it's problematic because, much as, for example, we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church where there are allegations, investigations, more people uh, pile on and indicate, yes, me too. Suddenly we now have um, a, a large body of people indicating that a particular priest, for example, has been engaged in such and such a behavior. And then, of course, one of the reactions is, let's sue the church, let's get as much money as the church as we possibly can. Well, the, the flaw there is that the money doesn't belong to the church. The money belongs to the people who have donated it to the church. And so you're depriving the community that is given to itself for the purpose of furthering the work of the church. You're depriving the community, not the individual responsible for committing a heinous act, but the community from its resources. And I think if law enforcement did a better job in terms of bringing to justice the perpetrators uh, and those who engage in cover-up, as we've seen in the case of many uh, bishops and archbishops within Roman Catholicism, that might be a better answer to this than suggesting that somehow we need to now add uh, the clergy to the list of some multiple categories of so-called mandatory reporters. And, and this is not even a case of, here's the evidence, I'm judge, jury, and um, prosecution or executioner, but even if there is a suspected act um, added to the list of those, such as teachers, are now, if Senate Bill 360 passes, clergy, which says to me now that anyone who would look at going to their priest or their minister to deal with any issue that might be weighted upon their shoulders would say, well, wait, the, the, the presumed protection of privacy is now gone. Uh, this could really have some serious long-term implications to it. Again, not challenging the the intent, the goodwill of trying to create an environment that that is safer for young people, but uh, you know how far do we need to take this? 
Yeah, I, I tell you, Craig, also I see this as being uh, unconstitutional. We at Pacific Justice see serious issues that we have the government coming in and invading the confession room, if you will, between um, an individual, you know, having a, a problem or a need to confess something and, and clergy. It's a, it's a huge handicap, also practically speaking, to the function of churches and ministers. Uh, people are not going to want to confide in them and get the counseling, the uh, rest- restorative uh, justice or, or health uh, that they need uh, to uh, overcome something that they're dealing with. And then, uh, and also, people need to remember that the status quo, under the status quo, uh, priests, pastors, church, and clergy, uh, they still uh, will contact law enforcement and others if someone is, pen- is planning on doing something in the future there's an imminent threat of harm to someone. Uh, they will still you know, play that role and, and are expected to play that role and have consistently have played that role in the past. We're talking about in looking backwards about something someone has done in the past and, and now... Uh, what is a matter of public policy? Do we want those people uh, to be more isolated, or do we want them to have uh, uh, restorative justice and healing to uh, halt whatever uh, they've done from occurring again? This is very serious. There will be more victims. Our society will suffer seriously uh, in the long term, and ministries will be hindered tremendously if this is passed. Well, it strips the clergy from the ability to do what exactly it is that they're supposed to be doing or charged with doing. It also makes problematic things like James 5.16, confess your sins to one another, so fulfill the law of Christ, and then be prepared to be reported. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that people who engage in heinous criminal behavior shouldn't be called to account for it. Um, But what I am suggesting is that the minute you open up this window, this can of worms, go down this slippery slope, whatever you wish to term it, um, where do we find the time where we say, okay, not here, but yes, there, who makes those sorts of judgment calls, and how far do we go before we have uh, completely stripped away that presumed right to privacy uh, that historically has been reserved for priest or minister, doctor, and lawyer? Um, it, it's it's a, um, it, it, it is a... a it's, I think, an ill-informed, ill-informed attempt to try to deal with another problem, but it, it, it fixes one problem and creates ten others. That's what's difficult about this. The likelihood, in your opinion at this point, the status of where this bill is within the California state legislature, Brad? I think it's fairly likely that we're going to see this pass. Uh, with, with looking at the makeup and the composition of the state assembly, the state senate, and the governor's uh, position, I think that we're going to likely see this pass, probably 80-90% probability. Um, so needlessly, we at Pacific Justice are looking at it very closely and um, dealing with, with what we're going to do and how we're going to deal with it uh, if it does become become lost. Very very serious front to religious freedom and, and keeping the government in check and protecting basic privacy, and particularly in ministry capacity. Jerry Brown served as governor over a big period of my time on the air, and I bet longtime listeners would bet that they'd never see the day come when Craig Roberts would suggest to the era of the Jerry Brown um, administration is the good old days. But <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly, we all may be referring to that time uh, because now there is no break. There is no break, and maybe that'll change, but so far the indicators are that uh, under a Gavin Newsom administration, anything that is proposed by the state legislature and um, passes in the Assembly and the Senate 
will surely fly off the governor's desk and into law. Thanks for the update. We'll be watching this. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. 534 on the clock. Let's get an update traffic-wise. Then when we come back, yay, we've got Brad. I'm sorry, we just had Brad. We've got Bob Zadek on the line, and we'll get to our conversation with Bob in just a moment. Right now, though, let's get to our conversation regarding traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He hosts one of the most compelling, thought-provoking, and insightful shows on talk radio today. He is a best-selling author. His latest book is called Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again. His program, every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Always a delight and an honor to have join us syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. Robert, how are you? Oh, Craig. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you back. Hey, uh, before we pivot to um, uh, some points that are sort of the dangling modifiers of, of the uh, Mueller investigation, let me just get your reaction to the shooting in outside of Denver today. Uh, I, as I kind of predicted at the start of the program, um, as seems to be typical in these cases, uh, the left will say we need tighter gun control laws. The right will say we need to protect the Second Amendment, and our thoughts and prayers are with the victims. And at the end of the day, little, if anything, gets done. Is there anything from your perspective, and I'm sure at some point you'll be addressing this as you have in the past on your talk show, but is there anything that we can or should be doing to try to deal with this kind of violence in public schools? Well, when you say deal with it, with this kind of violence, uh, first of all, the while these violent acts, of course, as they should, make the news, the fact is, statistically, there is not any more statistically violence today than in the past. And to the extent that there is any violence, of course, it is too, far too simplistic to blame the violence on the presence or the availability or non-availability of guns when the issue is so complex it deals with uh, over it deals with uh, disaffection of members of society. It deals with the very complex issue of our inability to identify early in the game people with mental health problems. And invariably, invariably, it deals with some failure to enforce existing legislation and existing laws on an effective basis. So the solution a simplistic solution, what happens is with both sides on this issue, for which, of course, there will never be any agreement and rarely even a change in one person's mind on uh, of the issue of gun control and the Second Amendment, all that happens is every time there is such an event as this, both sides, every side, picks it as proof that they are right. And you will see that happening this time as well. Those who say the problem is something else will point to this and saying the something else wasn't done right. Those who say the problem is guns will point to the availability of guns and say it proves this point. And you will hear uh, with equal 
sincerity and vehemence, both sides taking opposite points on the issue, pointing to the same event as proof that their side is right. And so the one thing for sure, and also the issue, when you talk about gun control, and, and then you promptly say, as we all do, the Second Amendment, the issue is not the Second Amendment. The issue is, I say, we discuss as a society how we feel about guns, and my view, we have that conversation as if the Second Amendment doesn't exist. We talk about our policy on guns, but both sides can point to the Second Amendment as proof of their position. And since the Second Amendment, one of the shorter elements of the Bill of Rights, it's only, I believe, 14 words long, and because of some strange punctuation, it's not even clear from a reading, unless you dig into constitutional law history, it's not even clear what exactly the Second Amendment means. Both sides point to the Second Amendment as proof that they are right. So let's not discuss it at the constitutional level. Let's discuss it at the policy level. And of course, one of the, uh, I think, shortcomings whenever this topic comes up and these tragedies happen, and that is that we talk about gun control. Rarely do we ever talk about people control, or or perhaps better put, self-control. I've long argued that we see these events take place, we shake our heads in dismay, we click our tongues in uh, in frustration, dependent upon what our particular uh, political persuasion is or where we come down on on the topic, And, and rarely do we ever look to ourselves in the mirror and say, well, we have created an environment in a society where we we have elevated violence to the level of entertainment, problem solving, etc., etc. So when society acts out in violent ways, where where do we find the righteous indignation to be upset about all of this? We've essentially reaped what we've sown. Also, also, when we talk about school killings and killings in other public places, so much of these, quote, mass murders where guns are the instrument used, so much of it happens in, in areas that are gun-free, where you are not allowed to bring a gun to begin with. One can say, and I'm not taking a position, because frankly, I'm not, I don't feel passionate about the issue of gun control. I certainly feel passionate about adherence to the Constitution, but not, I don't feel passionate about gun control. It's just not an issue I can get as passionate about as other issues. But I will point out that what do we learn from the fact that so much of this happens in areas where guns are not permitted and those who favor uh, or who don't support more gun control, who think laws are okay the way it is, point out and speculate, because there's only speculation, would these acts have happened if guns were allowed by the right people in these otherwise gun-free zones? Now, I, I, I just mentioned that to show how both sides point to these events in support of their position, not because I am trying to take a position or because I feel particularly strongly about the issue. Yeah, well, 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 well intended, well put, and, 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 and let me chime in by saying there's, there's a community in the San Francisco Bay Area. I won't embarrass them by naming them, but if you live there, you've seen the signs, you know that boast two things. They are gun-free 
and a nuclear-free zone, which I've always thought, should one of our enemies decide to drop the bomb, do they look at the map and say, oh, wait, make sure that the epicenter is not in this town because that's a nuclear-free zone. It, it's interesting rhetoric that oftentimes accomplishes absolutely nothing. All right, let's pivot to um, another critical topic. And if you've just tuned in, visiting today with nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek from The Bob Zadek Show. Um, Bob, we, of course, have come off of, of two consistent, uh, grueling weeks of, of dissecting at multiple levels the Mueller report, some information we have, very little, perhaps, that, uh, of the totality of the report. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time picking apart uh, the, the, the summary that was given by the AG. What I do want to talk about is some of the substance and some of the issues that perhaps are getting lost in all of the, the um, uh, political debate here, and that is the question of overall Russian meddling within the election. I, I think it is safe to conclude that at multiple layers it has been demonstrated that Russia engaged in behavior that attempted to manipulate or somehow influence the outcome of our presidential election two years ago. I find it mildly disingenuous that we as Americans scoffaw at this and wag our fingers in, 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 in aggravation against Russia for behaving this way when, sadly, the United States has a long history of this behavior well before even the invention of the Internet. Break it down for us first. One of the big issues. So Russia spent 70, 80, 100 million dollars, whatever it was, with social media sites like Facebook buying ads in an attempt to try and influence the election. In a period of time now where elections are multi, multi million dollar operations, and I have no no idea what the what the the costs were of the multiple candidates altogether um, for the uh, the 2016 election, but I got to imagine it's a pretty significant number. Is it really practical to even believe for a moment that on social media platforms like Facebook alone, that the Russians were really able to get that much of a handle on influencing the outcome of who became eventually president on the heels of two, two, 2016 election? Craig, I'm so glad you asked that. There has been nothing short of insanity, insanity, a strong word, in the public discourse discussing alleged Russian meddling. And here's what I mean when I use the strong word insanity. It is alleged, no one knows for sure, but these numbers that you quoted are good working numbers, that Russians spent about $70 million allegedly on fake news, on uh, social media outlets, in an attempt to influence the election because the Russians were would prefer that Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton win. Let's accept that as the working assumptions for this discussion on radio and people were were talking media otherwise sane um, folks in the media were talking as if our democracy was hanging in the balance Craig if we are a country of 320 million people and have been around for almost 240 years and with all of the power of our country if our democratic future can be threatened by 70 million dollars craig you and i should just start packing how can any country on earth 
allegedly be so vulnerable that it can be destroyed or materially harmed by $70 million. Do you know how many men and women on this planet have $70 million to spend? That makes every one of these individuals with $70 million, the number is in the tens of thousands, any one of those individuals can, if you believe the media, bring down our country oh my god oh my god we're doomed so the point is what russian did was whatever they did was immaterial we have to acknowledge it cannot possibly affect the outcome but craig there is a far more interesting question i would like to pose to you but i know you know the answer and invite our listeners to think about and it's this hypothetical, Craig. Let us assume, first of all, that Russia desperately wanted Trump to win and Hillary to lose. Let us assume that. Let us assume that Russia obtained truthful, remember, I say truthful information about Hillary that would assure she doesn't get elected. Maybe she was a spy. Maybe she... What, I, I, pretend there is something so damaging, and it's true, that if the public knew, Hillary would not get elected. And assume that Russia, solely to make sure that Donald Trump won, the, Russia makes that information available to Americans. And as a result, Hillary loses and Trump wins, as a result of what Russia did. Now, all Russia did was make information that we needed to know available to us didn't russia forget about their motive didn't they perform a public service they gave the american voting public information that the voting public found was really important and the voting public acted upon it did russia should russia get a medal or should they be criticized now I defy anybody to answer that question with integrity and admit Russian did us, Russia did us a service. They make honest information available to us so we could vote more intelligently. And if Russia did us a service, do we care what their motive was or do we just say, thank God they got information before us in time for the election? What do you think about that, Craig? Well, the utter irony, and I said so over the course of this debate as it began to unfold in terms of the Podesta emails and what was being made available and the role of WikiLeaks, etc., etc., and and, uh, the questions about the the Russians' involvement, etc., etc. And I said, you know, the utter irony in all of this as we are debating who did it, why did they do it, when did they do it, what was their motive, the one thing that has never been disputed, and that is the validity of the contents of those emails. And so at the end of the day, the the whole issue of who, what, when, where, why takes perhaps a back seat to the content of the emails and what the emails demonstrated in terms of the manipulation going on of our election process by one of the two major parties in the United States. And and yet they have did a, a deathful, I think, execution of pivoting the conversation away from that reality and instead wishing to focus on all these minors. 
Craig, you said manipulation. Is it a manipulation if you get information in front of the voters, which is truthful? Is that a manipulation? Did did Ellsberg manipulate America when he disclosed the Pentagon Papers? Is that a manipulation or is that a public service? So the issue of motivation, Russia's motivation, has to be separated from the act they did. And if what Russia did was truthful, they, the fact that they are motivated by by getting a result they prefer, do we care about the motivation, and, or do we just dismiss the motivation and say they got us public information that's truthful, and anybody who gets us information that helps us vote more intelligently has done a service to us, even if they had bad motives in doing so. I separate the motive from the act, well, and therefore I don't get myself worked up over what Russia did. And there's two other aspects of this equation that I think we're, we're sadly ignoring, or the population in general and the media um, in specific is sadly ignoring. And that is number one. Um, we're, we're upset about this. We don't like the notion of uh, the Russians meddling in our election process. Okay, if we want to be truthful here, we are just as guilty. In fact, we might have invented it um, in terms of American involvement in other elections down through the years. Moreover, I, I find two things troubling here, that there's not much political discussion around, and that is, number one, that barely, not even, two-thirds of eligible voters actually showed up to the polls and exercised their voting rights on Election Day. I find that very problematic. The other thing that I find problematic is that we're so upset about the Russians dropping $70 million on Facebook, okay, so that meant that, uh, I don't know, um, they've, they've got a few extra shekels now in in uh, the pockets of, uh, of leadership there at Facebook over here across the Bay. But the bigger question is, are we really, as Americans, looking singularly to a social media platform like Facebook to help guide us in our decision-making process as to whom we're going to choose for the next president of the United States? I find anybody who says, yeah, I figured out who to vote for based on what I learned on Facebook, a a very horrifically under-informed, if not outright misinformed voter, I find that even more troubling. Oh, infinitely. As you know, I've done more than one show on voter ignorance. You said one comment, Craig, that I'd like to have a somewhat provocative response to. You you said somewhat negatively you didn't approve of voters not voting. You felt they have voters have a duty to vote. You know, Craig, I want fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people to vote. Every person who doesn't vote means my vote counts more. I want nobody to vote except me. <laughs> um, I'd be perfectly happy. Then I get to decide. So, Craig, and second of all, since most voters do not make a decision out of their rational self-interest, they simply decide, since one vote doesn't matter, and of course they are correct, since one vote doesn't matter, a voter might say to themselves, quite rationally, I am not going to spend hours and hours reading about all of the issues. It's boring, and I don't really choose to be an informed voter. I'd rather not vote or just vote based upon what's called voting shortcuts, party affiliation, race, sex, religion, height, weight. I'm just going to use 
or what George Will tells me to do. People take voting shortcuts all the time because it makes no sense for somebody to spend hours studying issues since their vote doesn't matter. So first of all, people do not have a duty to vote. They have a duty to vote if they are totally informed. If they are uninformed, they have a duty not to vote. And second of all, the fewer people who vote, the happier I am, because then you and I get to have a, an oversized say in government. So at the so end of the day, the, essentially the, 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 the uninformed, well, let's call it what it is, dumb, lazy voter actually wreaks more havoc, creates more issues, problematically speaking, when they engage in going into the ballot box. And as I say, you, you, as you said, what, whatever crazy method that they use to, to vote, you know, uh, I vote for everybody whose, uh, you know, uh, last name ends in a vowel or <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be, they wind up doing more harm to the, the electoral process than good. Craig, you say they're lazy. I am much more I am much more generous and positive thinking. The average voter who has to spend their day making their lives better, making their family lives better, doing good in society, having fun, look making their own personal lives better. The average voter in the world, not just in America, makes a decision how to spend their waking hours. And of all the ways to benefit oneself while you're awake, there is no individual benefit, none, zero, by studying voting issues to become an informed voter. No matter how informed you are, the effect on your own life is, in, is immaterial. You never can affect your own life unless an election is decided by one vote. So you call them lazy. Most people will say they are behaving in their rational self-interest. They are making the highest and best use of the few hours a day they are awake. And I say they are far more sane than I am, and maybe you, Craig, but I'll just speak for my, I'll indict myself. I spend countless hours studying issues so I can be the smartest voter on the planet, even though my life will never be one bit better because I am, by my own measure, a really smart voter. Of course, one vote doesn't matter. Robert, another quick question for you here. Um, again, there's been a lot of feigning anger over Russian meddling in the elections. And while perhaps superficially speaking, we can find it problematic, isn't the reality that um, um, outside forces have been influencing American politics for decades now, whether you want to call those outside forces, meaning those other than the electorate themselves, uh, whether it be special interest groups or, or even the ability of a political action committee that I believe can legally accept donations from foreign nationals or those that are just trying to engage in influence peddling, like, well, I'm not contributing to Hillary Clinton's um, election campaign, but I did make a sizable contribution as a foreign national to her um, nonprofit foundation. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't that all the same as Russia spending $70 million with Facebook? Of course it is. Uh, and of course, when asking the question, you knew how I was going to answer because you, you know the answer yourself. Now, I would just correct you. You say for decades, Craig, the first example of foreign meddling is something called the X 
XYZ affair that happened during the John Adams administration in 1796. The French tried to profoundly influence American foreign policy. So it goes back to the first birth year of our country. So um, you, decades, no. Hundreds of years, yes. And it will always happen. And the fact is, uh, that is simply part of what goes on in the world. And it is everybody's foreign policy. The U.S. has been meddling in elections in Iran, South Korea, North Korea, Venezuela, um, Central America, throughout. It has been an, a, an accepted instrument of our foreign policy. We caused the Shah to get into power in Iran and depose the democratically elected government. We interfered in the, in the Philippines. We interfered in Panama, throughout Central and South America. And for us to be so embarrassingly hypocritical that we use that as an instrument of our foreign policy, because after all, we are America and we only do good, and then we behave like a spurned um, lover when all of a sudden another country, quote, does it to us, something we have been doing proudly because we say we're doing it to further democracy. Well, you know what? The motive doesn't matter. If the act is bad, it's bad, irrespective of motive. So I am painfully embarrassed by the hypocrisy of it all. Yeah, I, I, I hearken for um, listeners that are old enough and are familiar enough with uh, the uh, 1942 film starring Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca, uh, the scene in the casino, probably three-quarters of the way through the film, Claude Rains comes in. I'm shocked, shocked to find out there's gambling going on in this establishment. Uh, it, 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 is, it is feigned anger, to be sure. Our thanks to syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek for being with us. Bob's program, of course, The Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, KTRB Radio here in San Francisco, and uh, you can hear them all across uh, the entire West Coast. You get more information about resources, recent guests, books, and other details at his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. And uh, be sure to catch his program. Compelling, thoughtful, and uh, thought-provoking, to be sure. Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer, The Bob Zadek Show. Robert, as always, we appreciate the time. All right, 6.03, the clock says. Let's see what the man says about traffic. We'll do that right now on KFAX. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.